Hello, my name's Michael. And my name's Eleanor. And this is Interfilm Recommends, a podcast exploring new and classic titles for film club leaders to use with your clubs. Today our featured film is the new on DVD title Love and Friendship, and we'll also be looking at two films from our alternative adaptations film list, before highlighting a couple of new in cinema titles. So let's kick off with Love and Friendship. So Love and Friendship is a really sharp comedic adaptation of a Jane Austen novella called Lady Susan. Uh, this is a U certificate, but we put it at 11 plus just because although there's no um, offensive material, um, the, the tone of the film itself is more suited to a secondary audience. And certainly they're the ones who will understand it and get the most out of it. And it sees the eponymous Lady Susan, played by Kate Beckinsale, in need of a new husband. So she travels around these uh, countryside estates between friends and well-to-do families um, and tries to negotiate one for herself, basically, playing off everybody else against each other. Um, So we've got a quick uh, clip now to set the scene. And this is Lady Susan talking to her daughter uh, about the situation they find themselves in. Frederica, dear, Sir James Martin is a kind-hearted young man whose only offence seems to be wanting to provide you with a life of comfort. Have you nothing to say? Dear, our present comfortable state is of the most precarious sort. We don't live. We visit. We're entirely at the mercy of our friends and relations, as we discovered so painfully at Langford. So we think this is a great film here at Interfilm. Um, And one of our young reporters, Aya, who is age 13, actually got to go and meet Kate Beckinsale and the director, Whit Stillman, at the film's junket. Um, And she loved the film, so you can hear a little bit more about uh, what she thought about it in her review here. I'm Aya. I recently watched a Jane Austen adaptation, Love and Friendship, starring the lovely Kate Beckinsale as the leading role, which was also directed by the very talented Whit Stillman. The story is about love and friendship (laughs) and focuses on the relationship between mother and daughter and their quest to find that perfect partner. I thought it was really funny considering it's a Jane Austen because, well, normally Jane Austens are period dramas and period dramas usually equal heavy reading. (laughs) I think the biggest standout moments for me personally would definitely have to be the costumes and the slick humour throughout. I also think that the biggest lesson that I've taken away from this movie is never judge a book by its cover because love and friendship really does demonstrate and prove to us that period dramas can be funny and they can be cool. I say go watch it if you like stories told well and like to laugh out loud. Okay, so as you can hear there, a really nice, um, passionate review from Aya and I think she touches upon some really interesting um, subjects and one of them is this idea of the period drama and the reputation it has for being I don't know a slightly how do you describe it slightly slower and yeah I think um the treatment that it gets in this adaptation of of Jane Austen is really kind of more true to the text in a way it's kind of got that liveliness and that kind of swift pacing that actually is how Jane Austen wrote it's very kind of satirical and sly um, so you think this is a Jane Austen adaptation being done right rather than... Yeah, absolutely, because I think sometimes people get a little bit, you know, they kind of have this image of period dramas being quite sort of slow and all about manners and kind of the sort of social interactions kind of happening. Yeah. Um, a, a kind of, um, 
I guess that kind of distanced way, whereas here the, it's so vivacious and kind of in your face that you just can't help but be swept along by it and really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much comedy here and it's, as you say, it's very satirical um, and, you know, Aya touches upon that in her review and it's really great that she, you know, says that it's it's a funny story and it's something that she otherwise wouldn't have thought she would have enjoyed previously. And I think we've we've talked about the dialogue really lending itself towards that. And that that's one of the key things in the film, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, Kate Beckinsale has got some of the best lines. Um, she is continuously talking and managing to turn situations to her advantage. I just love the way there are so many moments in the film where she kind of walks in on people that are talking about her and manages to surprise them and, and kind of turn it in such a way that, you know, she's like, oh, what a charming expression or something like that to, to kind of turn the situation around to, to get other people on the back foot. So she's always kind of driving those situations it's really interesting as well because even though us as the audience who um you know we we recognize what she's doing and we're there when she's plotting as well but even in those scenes when she is you know negotiating and getting people into situations that she wants them to be in we can see how convincing she is and we're almost taken along for the ride with them, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, she's just such an, not an endearing character because she's obviously, you know, she's she's completely amoral, but she's just so much fun to go along with. You know, you, you do get kind of seduced by her because she is just so entertaining to watch. And um, yeah, I think um, as well, there's a lot of comedy to be had in the people that maybe don't get as many lines. Uh, I mean, yeah. you kind of, um, there's a kind of character that's always there that's being played against... Um, uh, man, how do you pronounce his name? Mannering. Mannering. Yeah. yeah. So Mannering is, uh, you know, her sort of love interest, and he is—he's talked about so much. He's such a big presence. He doesn't get a single line in the film. I mean, watch it and see and see if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't get to say a single word. But then you've got um, so Tom Bennett, the actor who plays uh, Sir James Martin, uh, and talking about great performances and people to watch, you know, people who you can't take your eyes off. He comes in and uh, apparently he was given more lines during production because he he's so hilarious. And you'll see why when you watch the film, he's absolutely you know, a gem of a performance. Yeah, I couldn't help what, just laughing every time he was on screen. But, but it's interesting because he every time he speaks, he trips himself up and he makes uh, a sort of off of himself in front of these people at a time where that was socially unacceptable. And you can see the way that they gravitate towards it, the way they look at him. Um, is sort of reducing his social standing with every every line that he utters, really. So there's there's an interest in why Manorin then keeps silent throughout the film. Maybe it's to his advantage. But, well, as we say, you know, this is... Um, you can probably tell already, this is... Uh, there are so many links for this film. English and literacy are the obvious ones. Um, but how it deals with gender, uh, storytelling, uh, even family as well. You know, we barely touched on the relationship between... Uh, Lady Susan and, and her daughter and that how that plays out. Yeah, because I think her daughter is kind of like um, the sort of inlet for the audience. You know, she's uh, the one kind of like sort of pure character who is kind of being manipulated by her mother, but is trying to rebel against it. And you can kind of see that conflict happening on screen. And, and you really feel for her as well as being enchanted by what her mother's doing. You're kind of like... You know, you're just really enjoying watching how this kind of dynamic is playing out, I think. She's almost our way in, isn't she? We, yeah. She notices the chaos all around her and almost yeah. can't believe what's taking place. So you had the most sympathy for her, even if she's not quite as kind of uh, scene-stealing as her mother is. 
so as we say, really plenty of ways to um, explore and, and discuss this film. Uh, we've got some festival screenings as well in uh, central London, which includes um, two of the cast attending uh, in Bristol, Maidenhead, Merseyside and Henley-on-Thames. So that is Love and Friendship. And now we're going to move on to our film list. So the theme of this week's episode is alternative adaptations. And it's a film list that we've created to sit alongside our key texts film list. So what this means is that the alternative adaptations list focuses on titles less likely to be on the curriculum, although some may be in certain areas and under certain boards, but are equally engaging and educational for clubs. So we're going to focus on uh, two of these films now, but on the website the rest of the film list uh, looks at titles including short story adaptations, graphic novels, uh, supposedly unfilmable books, and even a non-fiction text as well. So let's look at our first of the two films, which is Never Let Me Go. So Never Let Me Go is from 2010. Um, it's a 12-certificate film, and we would say it's suitable for 11+. Plus. Uh, and it's an adaptation of the Kazuo Ishiguro novel, um, which is kind of all about the sort of nature of being human. Um, so it's kind of an interesting treatment of the science fiction genre. It's kind of um, very much set in kind of the everyday life and everyday interactions of these characters. Um, so um, we begin the story at a boarding school called Hailsham and um, you're kind of introduced to it and there's golden light um, and you kind of get introduced to our main characters and sort of their situation quite early on. So we know that they're kind of special for a certain reason. They're slightly separated from society. And we've got a little clip here to kind of give you an idea of, um, of what's kind of going on beneath the surface here. Students of Hailsham are special. Keeping yourselves well, keeping yourselves healthy inside is of paramount importance. Have I made myself clear? Yes. Okay, so as you can hear there, um, the students of Hailsham are kind of separate and special. They're kind of kept aside from society and you kind of find out why as the story goes on. It's kind of revealed in very subtle ways. Yeah, so it's in both the book and the film that sort of reveals itself. I think at slightly different points, um, but there are hints throughout. So we know that something is amiss or something, something is, is different here in this story. Yeah, and I think the way that it's revealed um, is so kind of key to the concerns of the book. Um, it's very emotional. It kind of really makes you consider as they're going along. Like, it's such a kind of masterclass in subtlety, um, both the book and the film. That's why they're, even though they kind of change the order of how things are revealed in the film, it's much more linear. It does really keep the essence of the text and that it's all about this kind of... Um, regret and reminiscence and kind of considerations about what might have been they're kind of key in there and it's um the performances really hold that up actually well we've talked um before haven't we about how this so it's set over different periods slightly different in the book to the film i think but um in terms of how they're presented mm -hmm. but we've said about how that sort of replicates a film's like atonement a little bit and obviously you've got Kira knightley in both those films We've got Kerry Mulligan, who is in uh, The Great Gatsby, who we'll talk about, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but how much do you think Alex Garland plays a part in in that writing process? Because obviously he's a screenwriter here, and he's worked on sci-fi a lot. He um, wrote a script for Twenty Eight Days Later as well. He recently uh, directed his first film, Ex Machina, which has certainly has themes in common with this film. 
Yeah, I think um, that he's given it a really good treatment, actually. I think, you know, he's kind of um, kept the real kind of sort of everydayness and the kind of emotional concerns of the characters and the kind of philosophical questions really rise because of that. But there's also some really kind of, I don't know, kind of almost shockingly bleak moments in the film that actually kind of come across really well because of the visual medium that you you kind of get in a different way from how it's presented in the text. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And which you can't ignore or escape, really. This this is, a, you know, a text that prompts those images and those discussions and those points, and it, it's it's a fundamental part of, of the story. Mm. Um, I think one of the things he does really well um, also is part of this story is there's there's a love triangle between the three characters played by Kieran Knightley, Carrie Mulligan and Andrew Garfield. Um, and that, and it's funny, we were talking about period dramas earlier and the um, reputation they get. And I think after films like Twilight and The Hunger Games to an extent, you know, love triangle can be a um, a daunting, you know, phrase or a, a scary uh, term for some people now. But it's not played out in, in that sort of melodramatic way, is it? No, not at all. I think um, the kind of dynamics between those characters is kind of how how it kind of helps you explore the philosophical problem that's posed in the film. So, I th- and I think their performances are fantastic, actually. They're so natural and there's this real kind of, like, awkwardness about kind of how they navigate one another and each other's feelings and that kind of thing, that it's just, you know, it's it's really poignant to watch, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, again, there's there's a lot to explore here. Um, ethics is a great one, uh, science, and there's, there's the literature uh, and adaptation angle as well. So that is Never Let Me Go. And we're going to move on now to our second film from the film list, which is The Great Gatsby. This is the 2013 version we'll be talking about. Uh, And this is a 12 certificate from the BBFC. We put it at 11 plus. We think this is uh, really good and suitable for all secondary audiences. And this is a typically visual, over-the-top, all-singing-all-dancing adaptation from director Baz Luhrmann. So we're just going to listen to a quick clip which shows the uh, introduction of the eponymous Jay Gatsby. When I arrived home, I noticed that a figure had emerged on my neighbor's dock. And something told me it was Mr. Gatsby. So I think this film is um, its almost quite different in tone from the source novel in a way, because it kind of picks up all of those themes that are about the jazz age and about the kind of flamboyant luxurious lifestyles but it takes it to such excess that it's almost quite distancing for the audience I feel like it really kind of you know goes with that more is more aesthetic um, and is quite yeah it's very in your face especially actually when it was released in cinemas and it was um, in 3D um, it was you know really took that to another level but I think in a way it kind of complements the kind of mystery of the character. I mean, he's the great Gatsby. It's all about the kind of projection of who he is and whether he really matches up to that front. And I think it, it kind of really runs with that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's an assault on the senses, isn't it? That's for sure. Um, wherever you're watching it, say particularly in the cinema. But I, I really like that about the film. Um, it's interesting to take such a a well-known and much-loved novel, and to do something so different with it. So as we've mentioned, the visuals are, 
you know, really, really lavish. They're bright, they're colourful. The stuff like the editing and the pacing as well really lends itself to that. So it's so quick. It's so, um, you know, jumping from one scene to another. You don't really, for, for what is a, a reasonably lengthy film, you don't feel like you get much of a chance to catch your breath once you're yeah. in full flow. It's a bit of a whirlwind, isn't it? Which is kind of, you know, leading you back to the Nick Carraway's kind of experiences of trying to work out who Gatsby really is. Yeah, just getting sucked into this world and, you know, before you know it, being, you know, deep underwater. I think it also links to... Um, these uh, glutted financial films that we've had recently, things like The Big Short and other films that show that foray into um, this world of greed and excess. And mm-hmm. what this film does well, I feel, is is that we, we witness that and part of us is thinking, you know, this is, this is unbelievable and, and we, we condemn it, but the other half of us is totally convinced and totally... Um, you know, sort of wishes we could be there, I think. I think we enjoy that, we revel in it, and that's what Baz Luhrmann is trying to do, I feel. Yeah, and I think um, his use of music really complements that. I think the way that he's incorporated um, modern-day performers to kind of um, sort of bring audiences in and kind of make them relate to that experience. So they're kind of watching something that might seem, you know, it's a product of the past, but they can get into the feel of it, the spirit of it, through inclusion of artists such as Jay-Z and Lana Del Rey. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that as well is, by necessity, including performers like that, it's it's just a, a very brief um, window into into you know 2013. It's, it's a brief moment in time, just as the 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 novel is. So the novel is about um, reveling in excess, where they they feel untouchable. But obviously, you know, the Wall Street crash has come in, the war has come in, um, and here, including musicians that you know, even now in 2016. If you were remaking this film, would you, would you go to Jay Z? Would you go to Lana Del Rey? Would it be other artists? Mm-hmm. So you're sort of replicating that idea of um, t- this is this is fleeting. You know, it, it's a passing moment, and we're just capturing the, the you know this this one moment, this this one feeling of um, invulnerability, really. The other thing I really like is is Gatsby, and and let's just before we wrap up, let's link this back to Love and Friendship and Lady Susan. She um, has dialogue. She has Machiavellian ways to get around people. He has he oozes charm and charisma, and that's how he sucks people into his world. Um, that's a really nice link, I think. Um, and you know, there as as we've said with these other films, there are many others um, as well. Particularly the you know the the design here, the 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 performing arts on show. There are there are so many things to explore. Um, with this and with all the other films on the film list as well. So now for our new in cinema section, here are a couple of titles that we think uh, will be really interesting for you or your students to go and see. Um, I'm going to kick off with my Scientology movie. Uh, So this is a 15 certificate film. Um, It's going to be out in cinemas from October the 7th, um, but we are also actually showing it in the Interfilm Festival, which is taking place between the 9th and the 25th of November. So this is a Louis Theroux documentary film um, and it's his first feature length film. Um, Obviously he's got a long uh, history of making fantastic documentaries for television and he's got a really strong reputation for getting under the skin of people who are on the fringes of society using his very disarming charm. However, the setup in this film is that he hasn't been very successful in getting to his target. The Church of Scientology isn't letting down its guard, so he has to change his tack slightly and instead meets with people who have left the church and who are kind of giving their experiences and may or may not be reliable narrators. 
Meanwhile, while Louis is trying to get close to the church and they are holding him very much at arm's length, they decide to turn the camera on him and see how he likes being under their lens. Um, so I think it looks like a really interesting film. Obviously, the topic is very interesting. It kind of um, relates to another documentary that was released, uh, Going Clear by Alex Gibney. Um, and also, I think the kind of style of this film is quite different because he's kind of got these frustrations to overcome. Um, and so the poster design for the film has been created by Ralph Steadman, who was um, famous for illustrating Hunter S. Thompson's gonzo journalism. Um, and I think that really kind of calls up all the kind of um, mischievous things that happen in the film, the way that they kind of have to sort of go around in circles to get to the heart of their story. Um, and yeah, it looks really good. Uh, from what we've seen, there are going to be levels of mischief, hijinks, and even some slightly farcical elements in this film, but also with the more kind of disturbing undercurrent. And my pick is uh, Supersonic, which is another documentary. Uh, this one looks at uh, Oasis and their rise to fame in, in the uh, 1990s. It looks at their uh, upbringing in Manchester and the relationship they have with their families, uh, not least of which the, the relationship between the two Gallagher brothers, which is you know, often tempestuous and has been quite volatile over the years and that sort of up and down swing that it's had. Uh, this is a 15 certificate. There is some very strong language, which you might expect. Uh, some drug references also. So it is only for the um, uh, for the upper secondary audience. Interestingly, it's executively produced by Azif Kapadia, who uh, made Senna, which is a fantastic documentary about the um, racing uh, driver. And he made Amy as well, which is even more relevant here, uh, the recent music documentary about Amy Winehouse. And much like those two films, this documentary has great access to film footage of the time. And it'll be really interesting, I think, to how, how that comes together and how it compares to um, Kapadia's other films, even though he's not directing this one. So both these films are released on Friday, October the 7th. So that's two really interesting sounding documentaries there for your students to enjoy. So that's everything for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our Alternative Adaptations podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight to look at the final film from Studio Ghibli, When Marnie Was There, which is a primary focus podcast all about ghosts and ghouls. In the meantime, you can check out all our previous podcasts on SoundCloud, all of which are accompanied by show notes, which link to resources including film guides, film lists, blogs and video content. We've loved all your feedback so far. Um, if you get in touch on Twitter, we'd love to hear some more and we'll incorporate as much as we possibly can. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you in a couple of weeks. Bye.